Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, The Somerton Man. But first, your true crime headlines. A California serial killer who was spared execution was murdered in prison. 81-year-old Roger Reese Kibbe, known as the I-5 Strangler in the 1970s and 1980s, was serving multiple life sentences when he was found unresponsive in his cell Sunday night. His cellmate was standing nearby. Kibbe was taken to a prison healthcare facility and pronounced dead less than 45 minutes later. Kibbe was initially convicted in 1991 of strangling 17-year-old Darcine Frackenpole, who had run away from her home in Seattle. Her nearly nude body was found by a jogger west of South Lake Tahoe below Echo Summit in September of 1987. Her pink dress was discovered about a thousand feet away from her body. Investigators at the time said that Kibbe was also a suspect in six other killings believed to be linked to the I-5 Strangler, whose trademark was cutting his victim's clothing in odd patterns. Prosecutors then were unable to file charges in those cases, and he was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison for Frackenpole's murder. Then, in 2009, new developments in evidence connected him to the other slayings, and Kibbe pleaded guilty to six new counts of murder. His victims were 21-year-old Lou Ellen Burley in 1977, and 19-year-old Stephanie Brown, 20-year-old Laura Hedrick, 25-year-old Catherine Kelly Quinones, 26-year-old Charmaine Sabra, and 29-year-old Barbara Ann Scott, all in 1986. It wasn't until 2011 that a Napa County Sheriff's deputy found the remains of Burley after Kibbe agreed to help locate her body as part of a plea agreement. Prosecutors said that they agreed to drop the possibility of the death penalty because Kibbe was unlikely to ever realistically face execution. His cellmate is serving a life sentence with the possibility for parole for first-degree murder in Riverside County. Officials would not say how long he had been housed with his cellmate, nor have they released details about Kibbe's death, citing the ongoing investigation. Las Vegas authorities have identified a 57-year-old Massachusetts man killed over the weekend in what police said was a single-punch pre-dawn confrontation with another man on a Las Vegas Strip pedestrian walkway. Thomas W. Driscoll was pronounced dead early Sunday of head and neck injuries, the Clark County coroner said Monday. His death was ruled a homicide. 33-year-old Brandon Marcus Laith was arrested a short time later and held on suspicion of murder. The fatal confrontation was caught on surveillance cameras at about 4.24 a.m. According to police, Laith yelled at Driscoll and a woman on a pedestrian bridge and followed them. As the victim and the woman went down an escalator, police said the suspect ran down the opposite side and waited for them at the bottom. That's when he attacked Driscoll, who collapsed to the ground after being punched. Driscoll was taken to Sunrise Hospital, 
where he was later pronounced dead. Leif is being held without bail, pending a Wednesday court appearance on murder charges. A Maryland appeals court has agreed that the judge who presided over the trial of a man convicted in two slayings made an error by allowing certain expert testimony. The ruling by the Maryland Court of Special Appeals could lead to a new trial for 60-year-old Kirk Byron Matthews, who was found guilty of second-degree murder and other counts in the 2017 shootings of 48-year-old Leslie Michael Smith and 44-year-old Linda Lynn McKenzie. Trial Judge Laura Ripkin sentenced Matthews to 80 years in prison. Matthews has maintained his innocence and filed an appeal shortly after sentencing. The three-judge appeals court panel ruled last week that Ripkin shouldn't have allowed testimony from an FBI scientist who analyzed footage of the incident to determine the shooter's height. During the trial, a woman told jurors that she saw a tall, thin, white man with a gun walk past her house before hearing gunshots. Matthews is black. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, The Somerton Man. But first, a quick break. Whether I'm out taking a walk around my neighborhood, running errands, or venturing out on my own, I always want to feel safe. That's why I never leave the house without my birdie. Birdie is a personal safety alarm designed to be easy to carry and simple to use. When you activate your birdie with a quick pull, the alarm will emit a loud 130 decibel siren and flashing strobe light to help deter an attack. This tool could help you prevent a life-altering tragedy. Unlike pepper spray or other deterrents, Birdie is no danger to you. Birdie goes wherever you go. The alarm comes in multiple colors and has a brass keychain so that you can attach it to your keys or your bag. I have one birdie on my keys, one in my apartment, one in the car, and I'm giving a birdie to every woman I know. Over 300,000 birdie alarms have been sold, and they have thousands of five-star reviews. Join the flock today for a safer tomorrow. Right now, She's Birdie is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase when you go to she'sbirdie.com slash murder minute. Go to She's Birdie, spelled S-H-E-S-B-I-R-D-I-E dot com slash murder minute. That's she'sbirdie.com slash murder minute. My cat is my best friend. And these days, we've been spending a lot more time at home together. And as much as I love my fur baby, I'm not fond of the stink bombs she leaves in her litter box. Everything from cleaning to covering up the smell is a constant battle. That's why I use Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter is kitty litter reinvented. Unlike traditional litter, Pretty Litter's super light crystals trap odor and release moisture, resulting in dry, low-maintenance litter that doesn't smell. And Pretty Litter is virtually dust-free 
because it's manufactured with a specialized de-dusting process. Less dust and no fuss. And Pretty Litter arrives safely at my door in a small, lightweight bag that lasts up to a month. Perfect while we're social distancing. Now that I get litter bags auto-shipped, I don't have to deal with last-minute trips to the store. And shipping is free. But above all else, here's why Pretty Litter is this pet parent's hero. It's a health indicator. Pretty Litter monitors my fur baby's health by changing colors when it detects potential underlying issues. You won't find that kind of innovation in conventional litter. Get the world's smartest kitty litter without leaving home by visiting prettylitter.com and use the promo code MURDERMINUTE for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com promo code MURDERMINUTE for 20% off. What are you waiting for? Get it right meow at prettylitter.com promo code MURDERMINUTE. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On the warm summer evening of November 30th, 1948, John Lyons and his wife were taking a walk along Somerton Beach in Adelaide, South Australia. As they walked toward Glenelg at around 7 p.m., the couple noticed a smartly dressed man slumped against the seawall approximately 20 yards away. His legs were outstretched in the sand, with his feet crossed, and he appeared to be smoking a cigarette. The man lifted his right arm, and then let it drop. The lions thought that he looked drunk, thought little of it, and continued on their way. At 7.30 p.m., another couple noticed the man. From above, he appeared to have fallen asleep. For half an hour, they sat on a bench together, observing him. The woman could see that he was wearing a suit and polished new shoes, unusual beach attire. And all the while they sat there, the man didn't move a muscle. As mosquitoes landed on his face, and still the man didn't flinch, the boyfriend joked, He must be dead to the world to not notice them. Dead, he was. But it wasn't until the next morning that the fact became clear to passers-by. When John Lyons returned to the beach for a morning swim, a crowd was gathered at the seawall where he saw the drunk man smoking the previous evening. When John walked over, he saw him slumped in the same position, feet crossed, with a cigarette tucked behind his ear. Another half-smoked cigarette was laying on his collar, as though it had dropped out of his mouth mid-smoke. The police soon arrived and confirmed that he was dead, and within hours the body was transported to the Royal Adelaide Hospital, where it was autopsied. Dr. John Barclay Bennett placed the time of death at no earlier than 2 a.m. The body 
bore no marks of violence on the outside, but inside the man's stomach and liver were congested with blood, and his spleen was, quote, strikingly large and firm and about three times the normal size. They noted that his pupils were smaller than normal. Drool ran out the side of his mouth as he lay against the wall. And in his stomach, pathologist John Dwyer found his last meal, a pasty. Dr. Bennett believed that the man had died of heart failure, caused by poisoning. But no trace of it was found in his body. Adelaide Coroner Thomas Cleland would later suggest that the only explanation was that one of two rare poisons must have been used, which, quote, decomposed very early after death. Strophanthin or digitalis, both of which could be obtained from a chemist and would leave no trace. An official cause of death could not be determined, but an inquest would later conclude that the man had not died of natural causes. Equally mysterious was the man's identity. He had no wallet, no cash, and no identification. All of the tags had been carefully cut out of his clothing, which were well-pressed and in perfect condition. In his pockets were a train ticket to the beach and a used bus ticket to Glenelg, a pack of chewing gum, two combs, some matches, and a pack of Army Club cigarettes, which strangely contained seven cigarettes of a more expensive brand called Kensitas. The man stood five foot eleven was in his mid-forties and of European descent, had no scars or any identifying marks on his body, and was in peak physical condition for his age. His calf muscles were high and well-defined, like that of a dancer or maybe a runner, and his toes were distinctively wedge-shaped. At the inquest, one expert noted, quote, I have not seen the tendency of calf muscles so pronounced as in this case. His feet were rather striking, suggesting, this is my own assumption, that he had been in the habit of wearing high-heeled and pointed shoes. Another expert suggested that perhaps the man had been a ballet dancer. Also distinctive were the man's teeth, his lateral incisors, were missing, and his sharp canines had grown in next to his front teeth, a rare occurrence. His stylish and immaculately kept clothing consisted of brown slacks, carefully mended inside one pocket with orange thread, a white shirt, a pullover, a red and blue striped tie, and a freshly pressed double-breasted jacket. But with all of the labels cut out, these were useless in identifying him. His dental records also proved a dead end. No match. 
The same was true of his fingerprints. A full set were taken and distributed with his photo throughout Australia and the English-speaking world. But no one could identify him. With nothing to call him, he soon became known as the Somerton Man, named after where he spent his final moments. Finally, on January 12th, there was a new lead. At Adelaide Railway Station, police discovered an unclaimed brown suitcase that had been deposited in the baggage room on November 30th. Inside, they found a spool of orange thread, several items of clothing, all with their labels removed, a brush, a table knife, and a stencil kit, the kind used for stenciling cargo on ships. The only name they could find among the belongings was in three clothing items containing the laundry marks of the name T. Keen. But it was another dead end. No record of a person named T. Keen could be found. Police remarked to reporters that they believed it was a red herring, that someone had, quote, purposely left them on, knowing that the dead man's name was not Keen. Police decided to bring in a new expert. In April, four months after the Somerton man's body was found, John Cleland, professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide, re-examined the body and its possessions and found a clue that the previous examiners had missed. Rolled up and tucked inside a small pocket, sewn into the waistband of the man's trousers, was a tiny scrap of paper. In elaborate typeset, it read, Tamam should. Farsi, for it is ended. The paper had been torn from a book of ancient Persian poetry, the Rubiyat of Omar Khayyam. A translation of the book by Edward Fitzgerald had been popular in Australia during World War II. The poems feature themes including the need to live one's life to the fullest and having no regrets. Perhaps the Somerton man intended it as a kind of suicide note. In June, after months of examinations, burial arrangements were finally made for the Somerton man to be laid to rest in the West Terrace Cemetery in Adelaide. But before police let go of him, they had the corpse embalmed and a cast taken of the head and upper torso. A bust of the Somerton man was created in the hope that it one day may help identify him. In July, the police asked the public to come forward if they had a copy of the Rubiyat with the final page torn or missing. And on the 23rd, a chemist from Glenelg came to the detective's office with a copy of the book. 
in December, he said, just days after the Somerton man's body was discovered, someone had left it in the back seat of his car. He had been out for a drive with his brother-in-law and parked the car near Somerton Beach. His brother-in-law had discovered the book on the floor in the back seat, and each had assumed that the book belonged to the other. It sat in the glove compartment, until he read in the newspaper that police were looking for a copy of the book. The two men then went back to the car to see if the last page was torn out. When they discovered that it was, they went straight to the police. Upon further inspection, detectives found a cryptic message sketched inside the back cover of the book in pencil. Investigators also discovered a telephone number belonging to a nurse who lived in Glenelg. She confirmed to police that she had owned a copy of the Rubiot and had given it to a soldier in Sydney during the war. His name was Alfred Boxall. Detectives felt certain that they had finally found the identity of the Somerton man. Unfortunately, they discovered that Boxall was alive and well. Even more disappointing was that he still had his copy of the Rubiot. On the front page, the nurse had written an inscription to him, and the last page was still intact. So how did the nurse's phone number end up in the other copy? Asked again about the Somerton man, the nurse, confronted with the bust police had made, seemed to recognize him. Officers described her as looking as if she were about to faint. But still, she tearfully denied knowing the man. Meanwhile, detectives trying to crack the coded message in the first copy of the Rubiot were unable to decipher it. They sent the message to naval intelligence and even allowed it to be published in the papers. But to this day, it has never been cracked. The code consists of five lines of seemingly random letters. The second line is crossed out. Under the first three lines is an X, crossed out twice, followed by the last two lines. The Navy wrote, quote, From the manner in which the lines have been represented as being set out in the original, it is evident that the end of each line indicates a break in sense. There is insufficient number of letters for definite conclusions to be based on analysis, but the indications together with the acceptance of the above breaks in sense indicate, insofar as can be seen, that the letters do not constitute any kind of simple cipher or code. The frequency of the occurrence of letters, whilst inconclusive, corresponds more favorably with the table of frequencies of initial letters of words in English than with any other table. Accordingly, a reasonable explanation would be that the lines are the initial letters of words of a verse of poetry or such like. 
1958, the coroner published his final results, and the case went cold. It wasn't until 2013 that new information about the case would come to light. Up until the nurse's death in 2007, her identity had been protected. But six years later, in an interview with 60 Minutes Australia, her daughter, Kate Thompson, revealed that she believed that her mother, Jessica Thompson, had lied to detectives during the investigation. According to Kate, her mother confessed to her that she knew more about the Somerton man, but did not reveal it to police, saying that it was, quote, above a state police level. Kate believed that her mother had been involved in spy-related activities. Her mother spoke fluent Russian, she said, and had an intense interest in communism. Spies were known to operate in the area around Adelaide, and many have speculated that the Somerton man was himself a Russian spy. Others believe that he fathered a child with the nurse. In the years since his death, much of the evidence has been lost or destroyed. The copy of the Rubiat was lost in the 1950s, and the suitcase was disposed of after being deemed irrelevant in 1986. Both autopsy reports have also gone missing. Today, the Somerton man's identity and cause of death remain a mystery. His gravestone reads, Here lies the unknown man who was found at Somerton Beach, 1st December, 1948. In 2019, South Australian Attorney General Vicky Chapman granted conditional approval to exhume the body for DNA testing purposes. It is expected to cost $20,000. The amount has not yet been raised. This has been Murder Minute. For True Crime Anytime, download the Murder Minute app and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Stereo at Murder Minute.